Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another exciting edition of the Chicago Bullseye. You're about to hear an interview with Kent McDill. Kent was the only Chicago Bulls beat writer to cover all six Bulls championships. He started covering the team in uh, the 1988-89 season. That was Doug Collins' last season as head coach, and he covered the team all the way through the final shot in Utah in 1998, Game 6. So for the entire tenure of Phil Jackson, I really enjoyed this conversation with Kent. I hope you do too. Before we get started, a few quick notes. We're going to have basketball historian Tim Gallagher's Top 5 Draft Prospects episode come out this weekend, likely on Sunday or Monday, so look for that. Email me at chicagobullseye at gmail.com if you are interested in being added to a a Bulls newsletter that we're about to launch. It's either going to be on a a monthly or bi-weekly basis. Not sure yet, but Email me at chicagobullseye.gmail.com if you want to be added to that. And just put newsletter in the subject line. Jerry Sloan passed away today um, on this, this Friday, May 22nd. Uh, the numbers 4, 10, 23, and 33 are sacred to Bulls Nation. His number 4 was the first retired on February 17th, 1978. And on behalf of all Bulls Nation, rest in peace. So now here's an interview with Kent McDill. I hope you enjoy it. Have a fantastic Memorial Day weekend. Have a safe weekend for you and your families. All the best. Godspeed and go Bulls. Hi, this is Neil Funk, and you're listening to Fred on the Chicago Bullseye. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another exciting edition of the Chicago Bullseye. Oh, boy, do we have a special treat today. We have the legendary Kent McDill on the line. Kent, how you doing, brother? I'm good. How are you? I'm living the dream these days in quarantine, but I tell you, what an exciting time to be a Bulls fan with the change in management uh, and, most importantly, the last dance. And your name is one of the legendary names in Bulls circles due to the fact that I think you were the only beat writer to cover all six championship teams. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. The uh, Tribune, Sun-Times, and Daily Herald were the three newspapers that sent beat writers on a regular basis. And the Tribune and Sun-Times both made shifts in their beat writer after the 93 title. Um, But the Daily Herald decided to stick with me, so I did... um, a couple of years before they started winning titles, I covered the team from 88 to 99. And I used to deliver, believe it or not, the Daily Southtown. So I was familiar with the Daily Herald, but I never really got a chance to read it due to the fact I was on the South Side until like probably the late 90s. So didn't you write a book on the Bulls? I'm 50. I've, I've actually written several. Um, I wrote, uh, I was asked to write a book with a Bulls player as a ghostwriter, and Bill Wennington was willing to do that. So Bill Wennington. Is it says by Bill Wennington and Kent McDill, um, so uh, that was the first. And then Triumph Books, a publisher here in Chicago, asked me to write um, 100 Things Bulls Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, um, which is a series. I mean, almost any sports team in America, uh, college or pro, um, has a 100 Things book written about them. Um, they actually, oddly enough, asked me to then write 100 Things Bears Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die because I started covering the Bears I've been covered the Bears in three different instances. Um, and then uh, Triumph Book started a series called If These Walls Could Talk. And I think mine was the first one of the series, um, which was more about the behind-the-scenes stuff, the, the personal um, things I remember about covering the team that 
that weren't necessarily historical but were made for interesting stories. I've read that book. Darnell Mayberry, who was my previous guest, actually wrote th- that same book for the Oklahoma City Thunder, which I'm sure was a little bit difficult considering their... Well, I guess you could go back to the Sonics days. But right. be- before we get into... Um, the, the the last dance topics and the teams of the 90s. I'd like to get a little bit 411 on you. How did you get involved in sports writing? What's your background? Where'd you grow up? I'm uh, basically from the Chicago suburbs. I went to high school in Hoffman Estates, the Conant High School, and um, went to DePaul University, the one that was a dub with a W at the end, uh, mm-hmm. DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana, with intentions of being a broadcaster. Um, uh, turned out I could write although I didn't know that at the time. Um, And I graduated and got a job with United Press International here in Chicago as a broadcast writer. I was writing specifically for radio and TV. Back in the days when there was what they would call rip and read, where guys would just rip material off of a machine and read it, and my job was to write that stuff. Um, This is the only really, this is the interesting part of it all. Uh, My weekends were uh, Wednesday and Thursday during the week, and my best friend from high school turned out to become the director of broadcasting at Indiana State University. And he was broadcasting the basketball games there when Larry Bird was playing. Mm. And so he asked me to be his color commentator. So I broadcast a lot of Larry Bird basketball while I was working for UPI in Chicago. Um, UPI needed a sports writer for the newspaper division in Indianapolis. They asked me if I wanted to do it. And I said, sure, although I'd never written newspaper copy in my life. Worked in Indianapolis for five years, um, then got transferred back to Chicago for UPI in 1985. And then in 88 was the year that the Daily Herald decided to go big time with their sports coverage and actually have uh, beat writers cover all the major pro sports teams and college and football. And what's interesting at that time was they, they basically uh, used all the writers that they had um, that were already covering the team on a local basis. But they needed a Bulls writer, and they needed a college football and basketball writer. And I really wanted the football and basketball job. Um, But for one reason or another, they decided to give me the Bulls job. And I said, okay, fine, I'll cover Michael Jordan for a few years. And now I'm talking to you. Unbelievable. So even what what year did you officially start? What season was that? Um, Uh, The summer of 1988 was when I transferred from UPI to the Daily Herald. So I started covering them the 88-89 season. Doug Doug Collins last season as coach of the team. Doug Collins versus Phil Jackson. Could you uh, elaborate a little bit on the differences between both men in terms of working with the media, but also as head coaches? I've always maintained that the Bulls would have won a title with Doug Collins. Do you disagree with that assertion? There's no real way to know that. Um, Doug was... I think the last dance actually represented the situation pretty well. Uh, Doug was a coach for Michael Jordan, and he was going to use the rest of the team to facilitate Michael, um, whereas uh, Phil had intentions of coaching the entire team. And who is to know? I mean, uh, Doug uh, is a very, very intelligent basketball mind, Um, far more emotional than Phil, as we've you know, as we've seen through all the videos and everything, mm-hmm. um, uh, Doug had a different relationship with the media than Phil did. Although Phil was never reticent to talk to the media, he, he just wasn't going to be as um, his th- his answers were going to be a bit more thoughtful than Doug's. Um, my relationship with Doug was fine. Um, 
and I actually knew him because I'd been covering the team for UPI for three years before I started with the Daily Herald, so I had a relationship with Doug already. And um, when they made the move, I have to tell you that making the move from uh, Doug to Phil was a hard one to explain. And uh, Reinsdorf's quote at the time was that they needed somebody who could move the team from point B to point C. Um, and so it was in Jerry's in Reinsdorf's mind that Doug was not to coach to get them to the championship level. And if he thought that, then there was no reason for me not to think that. I don't believe that Reinsdorf's script there. I think there were one of two reasons. Number one, I've heard rumors, and Horace Grant converted this to me himself, that uh, Doug Collins wanted to draft Horace Grant, whereas Kraus wanted Joe Wolf. Collins went around Kraus directly to Reinsdorf to petition for, for Horace Grant. I think that action probably... Left to, caused a rift between Kraus and and Collins. The second reason given was that he sidelined Tex Winter as an offensive coach that was highlighted in the Last Dance. Out of those two reasons, do you think there's any validity to, to either one? Um, I'll buy. Well, I'll certainly buy both of them if you know if anybody were to come up with any sort of proof. Um, uh, it was known that Jerry liked Joe Wolf, um, liked the program that he was coming from. I don't know that he disliked Horace necessarily. Um, you know, at the time, uh, Wolf was actually a bigger body. Horace needed a lot of development when he came to the Bulls. Um, and then the Tex winner, but the Tex winner thing was obvious. And Jerry had decided to hitch his wagon to Tex winner, and Doug wasn't willing to drive the wagon that way. So um, I can see that that. Uh, would have something to do with that as well. Um, the one thing that you learned over time was that um, Jerry Reinsdorf's loyalty to Jerry Krause was uh, tantamount and wasn't going to um, be swayed by outside voices. I maintain that the loss on June 3rd, 1990 to the Pistons in Game 7 was the most devastating loss up to that time in Chicago sports history. I think there were massive questions around about the team and their performance surrounding Michael after that game, and it wasn't really solved until they finally won a title. Do you concur? Do you agree with that assertion? Back back then, I don't know if this is still true, but back then there was a, a working theory that teams that wanted to win a title had to work their way up, that there was a ladder that one had to climb to get where they wanted to go, and... Um, the Pistons was the rung of the ladder that the Bulls needed to get past. Um, I think maybe, you know, the fact that the Bulls then went ahead in 91 and dealt with the Pistons the way they did sort of indicated that the uh, 90 loss was part of the building structure that was necessary for the Bulls to become a championship team. Um, you know, I, I don't know whether you're going to compare uh, loss of that game to anything that happened to the 84 Cubs or um, any Bears team in the past. Um, I, I tend more to think that the loss in 90 was more of a building block than a, a devastating um, event. Jordan, I, I think, has always kind of alluded to the fact he questioned that Scotty really had a migraine as opposed to he just didn't show up for the big game. It was more of an anxiety issue as opposed to an actual headache. What do you believe in retrospect, and what did you what did you feel the team felt at the time? I mean, you know, you watched the last dance, and you saw what the way Michael referred to the migraine, and he raised his eyebrows, and 
I don't know that, that you know I don't know if we need to be discussing that again 30 years later uh, 20 years later um, as to whether Michael believed Scotty and you know I think Scotty Scotty had misdeeds throughout but I think he's proven himself time and again and I mean he was he was in a lot of pain that day and I'm not one to get migraines but I've been told that they're horrifying and Considering what he was being asked to do to play with a migraine, um, you know, he contributed as much as he possibly could. Um, I think if it had been truly a matter of not being able to face the big moment, um, we would have heard more about that. Uh, there would have been questions raised by Cartwright or John Paxson or somebody or Phil um more than than michael i don't know you know is it fair for michael to hold everybody else to the same degree of performance quality that that he was able to maintain um and if so then why is michael so special yeah i te- but i also i clearly one of the questions that you were going to ask me about my relationship with players my relationship with scotty was brilliant i mean it was just the greatest one of the best relationships i had <laughs> with the team um and so, you know, maybe I'm being unduly kind to Scotty. I don't know. So you were the only beat writer for all six championship teams. Which one of those teams do you feel was the best? And what opponent represented the best competition? You're not going to argue against the 96 team as being the best team. The, the, and, and, again, this goes to the whole Jerry Krause issue. Krause built the team that won 91 through 93. And then managed to shift so much of the effort to players like Kukoc and Rodman, Longley, Kerr, and Harper, he should get, he should, give me another example of a general manager in any sport who was able to shift a championship team to another championship team on the run. I know that he was, he's working with, he had three main ingredients that, that, you know, were, huge in the creation of the second championship team but he still managed to come up with the pieces that combine those two um but i remember watching the uh 96 team and i'm not one to do a lot of retrospecting but if you go back and you think how did they lose 10 games um it's just that that team was just so powerful and um I generally think the uh, discussion, you know, is the Bulls, uh, the Bulls of then as good as the Warriors of the last decade. And I, I think those arguments are just dumb and a waste of time. And I'd rather be bowling. Uh, I, it's really hard for me to think that any team was built as well as the 96 team. So that's, that's the best team that I've dealt with. Um, what was the, was the second part of that question? What, what opponent was it? The Lakers, oh, yeah. the Blazers, um, the Suns? Um, I think I referenced it in the Daily Herald article today. Um, the only only team that I thought had a really good chance to beat the Bulls was the Utah Jazz. Um, I thought the Lakers' time had come and gone. I didn't think Portland had a chance. Um, I, I think I thought again Phoenix needed to climb the ladder, and their sudden insertion into the finals was just too early for them. Plus, they were a team that was built around a 6-4 power forward, and I don't know how successful that team's going to be. Um, Seattle, uh, I didn't think Seattle was as 
serious as the Bulls were about winning, and you weren't going to beat that team anyway. Um, the one thing I liked about Seattle was I got to spend a week in that gorgeous city in June when the sun was shining the whole time. And then, uh, so we got to Utah, and Utah was a dead serious team. I mean, there just wasn't any humor in that team at all, uh, led by a dead serious guy in Jerry Sloan and two guys in Malone and Stockton. Um, I mean, you weren't going to get a lot of laughs, but you were definitely going to get a serious effort. And I thought, had you told me that the Bulls would play the Jazz in both 97-98 finals, prior to those finals, I would have guessed that the Jazz would have won one of those two. What players or coaches did you enjoy the best relationship with? Who did you enjoy interviewing? And what players or coaches or front office personnel were more problematic for you? Oh, well, um... I would be remiss not to tell you that uh, John Paxson and I are extremely close friends today. Um, when he and I met, we joined the club. I was still working for UPI, and we just we just click. We're we have an awful lot in common, and and um, so that's by far the the best relationship I have from those days. Um, honestly, I had very few bad relationships. Um, so the, the, the way to look at it is those relationships that were above and beyond. Um, I went out of my way to build a relationship with Scotty Pippen because I felt that there was so much concentration by other reporters on Michael and Scotty's contributions, you know, I mean, if there's one and one a, then that, I mean, that's what Jordan and Pippen are. And I felt that Scotty needed to be regarded at a level very similar to Michael. So I went out of my way to make sure Scotty understood that I was looking for his viewpoint on things as often as I was Michael. And that, of course, worked out for me on a couple of occasions when Scotty gave me uh, stories that he didn't give anybody else. Um, that first Through the first uh, three championships, I also had an interesting relationship with Bill Cartwright. Um, back in the day, when I first started in 88, um, the media got to go on the team bus um, from airport to hotel, from hotel to game, um, because we all sort of traveled together. The, the team was still flying commercial, so I was often on the same flight that they were on. And so they would let me take the bus from the airport to the hotel. Um, and the media sat up front and then the players sat in the back, and Bill always had the most upfront seat of the players because he didn't want to be hanging with the guys in the back of the bus. And so I always ended up sitting one row ahead of Bill, and he and I talked on all those trips. We always talked about just stuff and things. Um, so that um, what's interesting and, and was something I wrote about in the um, one Bulls book, the personal Bulls book, when they won the 91 title, um, I was in the locker room and I was going around to talk to all the guys about what it was like to win a first title. And I walked up to Cartwright and you have to remember Cartwright had no friends on the team. And, I mean, he was friendly with guys, but he had no close relationships. And mm. when I walked up to him, he hugged me. I mean, he just grabbed me and hugged me. And, you know, I'm a five, eight and a half guy being hugged by a seven, one guy. Um, and it was just a, it was just, I mean, I understood. I mean, he wanted somebody to hug. And I just happened to be there. And, and like I said, we had a pretty decent relationship. So um, that happened. Um, uh, so let's go on to the 96-98 team as far as player um, relationships go. Um, 
Well, Dennis Rodman. Um, when they drafted, or no, when they traded for Rodman, I was oh, I was so upset. Uh, I didn't like I didn't like who Dennis was on a basketball court. Um, I hated the way that he intimidated other players. I just didn't think it was basketball. It felt more like I don't know, spy versus spy or something. So then I found out after several different conversations with him in um, one-on-one situations that he was charming. He was, he really is pleasant guy to talk to, or at least he was. Um, and to the point where I would often seek him out in those situations where there wasn't a great big angle of people around. And I had the opportunity to be in that kind of situation, uh, on a regular basis. So, um, we had a really decent time except for those times when there was lights and cameras around. Then he turned into, Dennis Rodman, everybody else saw the guy who married himself and all that sort of thing. Um, I, I didn't necessarily like that guy, but I certainly like Dennis on a one-on-one basis, which means I have something in common with the leader of North Korea. So the two other guys, well, Steve Kerr is the best. I mean, he's just, he's, you know, salt of the earth and it would be very difficult to have a difficult relationship with Steve. Um, the other two guys, that really sort of mattered to me were Ku Coach and Luke Longley. Um, I really wanted to develop a relationship with Ku Coach because I thought his story was so interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, waited several years to come to the team after being drafted in 1990, came to the team at a time when he thought he was going to be playing with Michael and then Jordan retired. And, and I've said at that meeting, that uh, press conference, that so many reporters were at, I couldn't take my eyes off Tony. Um, and, and he was tearing up because he'd left his family. He'd left millions of dollars. The, the Treviso, Benetton Treviso team was paying him much more than he was going to be making for the Bulls. And he did it with the idea that he was going to play finally with Michael Jordan. And that was taken away from him. So, um, I honestly, it's like watching all the clips on the last dance, anything that, Anytime Kukoc was on the screen, I was watching him. You know, I I appreciate the fact that there are scenes of him hugging Scottie Pippen and him hugging Michael Jordan when they win. And and he he was part of the team again after going what through what going through what he went through on the Olympics and and all that. So I always appreciated his story. Um, Luke Longley, I have to tell you, what a great guy. Um, just, he was so pleasant. And then the one thing that hurt him was that he wasn't driven the way Michael was driven. Um, he's, he wasn't motivated that way. He's just an easygoing dude. Um, I mean, part of it is perhaps, you know, being Australian and the fact that no worries is a phrase that that you got out of him no matter how what conversation you were talking about. It. Uh, living in a life, you know, uh, Hakuna Matata, um, is is what Luke Longley was like, and um, he was just a, really a pleasure to talk to. You weren't going to get a lot of basketball acumen out of him, but I certainly enjoyed his company. Um, from a front office um, situation, I had no problem with Phil. I was actually thrilled at the idea that Phil was going to become coach because he was more uh, intellectual than Doug and, and I didn't mind that. Um, but I just, I never, I think there was one occasion in which Phil really got angry with me. Um, what was that? And, 
Uh, something stupid. Some um, I had reported on a trade, a possibility, and and he was denying it and and said that whoever my source was was lying, and it was just really, and I, I was it was no big deal. And then my relationship with Kraus, and again, there's all sorts of reasons not to like Jerry. Um, he would never tell you anything. He, he could, you could have a conversation with him for 30 minutes and have absolutely nothing to write when it was all over because he wasn't <laughs> going to, he wasn't going to tell you squat. And, but the thing is you have to give him credit for not sharing with some reporters and sharing with others. So one guy in the whole league that seemed to actually be able to get something out of Krause that meant anything was Bob Ryan from Boston um, the rest of us, he treated us all the same, and I, I give him credit for that. Um, mm. And I'm just, I'm not the, I, it seems like a bully mentality. Um, I'm kind of surprised that Michael and the producer of The Last Dance went to such trouble to prove that Michael mistreated Jerry Krause. I mean, how hard is it, how hard is it to mistreat a guy that looked like Jerry, that had Jerry's personality? I mean, how much... How much effort does that take? And and how hard is it to just be a decent human being? And I know Jerry appreciated the fact that I didn't abuse him the way others did. I mean, there were, print, beat writers aren't in a position to print opinionated pieces. But that being said, a lot of people would just walk away from Jerry when he approached, and I was always willing to talk to him. So um I'm not going to tell you I had a great relationship with Jerry, but I will tell you that my relationship was probably cleaner than the relationship he had with other writers. It's interesting you've really you haven't really said anything about Michael. I, I, I'm curious to get your opinion on him and his evolution over the course of the six years. Okay, so I started with Michael in 19. Well, I started covering him in what 86, 85, 86. He was always fine with me. I it wasn't like I ever felt that we were like close um not that he was so guarded originally he wasn't guarded at all he um yeah he was very open and then when the trouble started in 92 he started to close up a little bit and then when he came back he was much more guarded in his relationship with the media but the thing about michael is that he was always very very respectful to me tell you a funny story that is was in the book and is one of my family's personal favorites is that early on I had a direct phone number for Michael and had called him on a Friday night um, for a story and um, didn't get, didn't hear back from him until seven o'clock Saturday morning. Um, I was asleep with my wife and the phone rang and my wife answered it and she, you know, she says, hello. And she says, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, he's here. Um, may I say who's calling? And then she hands me the phone and she says, he says it's Michael Jordan. And as sarcastically as possible, as if some friend of mine would have called and pretended to be Michael Jordan. And it was Mike. And so I, I take the phone and Mike's laughing. And you have to think that happened to him a lot, where he would make a phone call, an unexpected phone call, claim to be Michael Jordan, and people on the other end wouldn't believe it. Yeah. Um, so... And the other thing I'll tell you, a story that I sort of reminded by The Last Dance. When Michael uh, was playing baseball and Sports Illustrated came out with the Baggett Michael cover and and he decided that he was going to um, no longer talk to Sports Illustrated writers, 
I was working for Sports Illustrated as their stringer in Chicago covering the Bulls. So anytime they needed any information Bulls-related, um, they would contact me. Um, they always had a, a NBA notes column in every issue at the back, and I was always contributing little bits and pieces. And Michael knew I was doing that. And yet, anytime I needed to talk to him about something that Sports Illustrated wanted, he was more than willing to answer my questions. He wasn't going to talk. He wasn't going to you know, sit for a long interview or be a, a cover story or anything like that for Sports Illustrated. But when I needed him, he was there. So that gives you an idea of the relationship I had with Michael. So do you feel the unfair coverage and speculation from the national media in 93 spurred his retirement? Or do you feel what it had... It would have happened no matter what. Did you believe he would also return eventually at that time? No. no. I don't know. The last dance has sort of changed a lot of opinions because Michael said some stuff that I've never actually heard him say. Um, why would he have retired? If, if there was no gambling talk, if his father hadn't been murdered, if none of that had happened, if Michael Jordan was still in 93, 94, was still the same Michael Jordan that we loved in 91, 92, why, why would he retire? I think all of the crap that he was facing and the fact that he was probably really tired gave him the impetus to consider retirement. I don't think the conversation would have been held if if all that stuff hadn't happened. Yeah, well, I think his father being murdered, right? I mean, that I lost my parent, and I didn't feel like doing anything for about six months. I can't imagine what it was like for him to lose his father in a violent murder. Right, well, see, that's the thing, is that he already had the gambling thing hanging over his head, and it, wouldn't, it wasn't going to go away. Um, during the summer before James was murdered, um, the second we had the Slim Bowler stuff, and then the Richard Aquinas wrote his book, mm -hmm. and that came out in the summer, I think, or late spring, whatever. And Michael was still dealing with that. Um, so those that that storyline wasn't going to go away. Um, and then you've got the James situation, and at that point, I can I can see Michael just giving up. Like, okay, you know, I've I've done my time. Um, I need to repair, not just physically. I don't think he. I don't think. You know, the question is, did he retire with every intention of coming back? And that, I don't know. that That's just pure speculation. But um, I don't think, had he not gone through that other crap, that he would have even considered retiring. I mean, he had, he had the chance, you know, he had the chance to do something that no team had ever done in terms of consecutive titles, unless you go way back to the um, Celtics. Celtics of yeah. the... What 50s and 60s, whatever it was. Exactly. At that time when he retired, in the back of your head, did you all, did you feel like oh, he'll come back, or did you feel like this was it? Well, apparently, I didn't think he was coming back because I wrote a column um, on the day after maybe the retirement thing, and I said, "See you later." I said, "Congratulations, you've retired at the top of your game." I went through. I don't remember. I haven't seen the column in a long time. At the time, the only two examples that I can remember of athletes actually retiring at the top of their game were Barry Sanders and Sandy Koufax. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? Mazel tov. I, I was just like, 
what a you know if this is what you want to do i am behind you 100 percent. and everybody else was was screaming no 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 don't do it don't do it please michael reconsider and it, that thought never entered my mind it was it was you know congratulations you're, you're doing something that very few professional athletes have ever done so having written that, I can't imagine that I was thinking he was coming back. I'll tell you, um, I don't know where we were. God, I wonder where I was. Um, that Jay Mariotti came up to me soon after that column. And, and Jay and I very rarely spoke about anything meaningful. But he came up to me and he said, hey, congratulations. That's a, what a great column. You're the only person in town who wrote it. Really took a lot of, a lot of guts to, to write that column. You're wrong, but congratulations on having the balls to write that column. I mean, he's like suggesting that this is a good thing to Mariotti was just wrong. And, of course, that attitude of everybody, here's the thing. That attitude that Michael was making a mistake by retiring is selfish. Everybody who said that was thinking only of their own interests and not not Michael's. So what we're saying here is that I am just a really great guy. <laughs> exactly. Who changed the most in your time covering the Bulls? Was it MJ, Scotty, or Phil out of those three who were the only really unifying force across the six titles? Well, it's easier to tell you who didn't change and who didn't change was Scotty. Scotty, yes, the one thing, again, you know, this is similar to what I was saying about Krause. The one thing I remember about Scotty finding out early on was that he lived in a house with 12 kids with a father who was disabled when Scotty was, what, 10 or 11, um, a mom who was responsible, the only one capable of putting food on the table, um, and his home, he lived in a home that had a dirt floor. I'll never, I'll never forget that. He lived in a home that had a dirt floor. And so everything that, every time that anything came up that was a little bit controversial about Scotty and especially contract talk, I thought to myself, well, this is a guy who lived uh, as a child in a house with a dirt floor. I, I, I'll, I will never get over that. Um, so I think Scotty was the same guy throughout. Michael was changed, but he was changed by circumstance. Um, as we're talking about the gambling and the, the situation with his father. Um, and I'll tell you another thing. When, Mike, when I first met Michael, I would tell people that he was the nicest, incredibly wealthy, famous person you would ever want to meet. Um, I think in the entire time I knew him, he only hit me with his wallet once where he said, I'm in a position to do something that you are not because I'm wealthy. But you have to, I mean, if Michael had come back and not changed anyway, that would have been shocking. I mean, yeah, yeah you know, he's, he's going to change and, and that makes all the sense. The change that I found the most dis- disconcerting was Phil. Phil came in, and like I said, he was, I was th- thinking I was going to be covering a hippie, and I was fine with that. I mean, I grew up in the 70s. I was, I was ready to cover a hippie. And um, early on, that's who he was. He was counterculture. He was into the Navajo, and, and he was, I remember one night, when he was still an assistant coach, we were in Boston and I was having dinner at a hotel bar by myself. And he walked down and sat down with me and we talked for two hours, just about, like I said, stuff and things. Um, when I was on the team bus, I always had, I was always a big reader. I always had a, a book to read. And one point I was reading Don Quixote 
And he came by and he saw that I was reading Don Quixote and he asked me idiotically if I was reading it in the original language. It was written in Spanish. I don't know why I thought I was going to be doing that. But then he <laughs> sat down and we talked about Don Quixote for like the whole bus ride. And, and I just loved that. So then this, I'll tell you, the, the day that I think Phil changed or the day that I regarded Phil having changed was um, one day he came on the bus and, you know, Phil, very tall guy, um, liked to wear really long coats, like overcoats. And one day he showed up and he was wearing the overcoat over his shoulders without his arms in the sleeves. And I thought, okay, that's it. We're done. He, I know he's, he's wearing a coat like, I don't know, Victor Hugo would have been wearing a coat or something. Um, and I said, okay, well, now he's, you know, he's become big time. And, um, and he did. I mean, he, he changed a, a great deal. But again, I mean, you know, with great fame comes, you know, great changes, I guess. So It's interesting that his relationship with Krauss disintegrated. What do you attribute it to? That's simple. Jerry Krauss wanted Phil Jackson to say, I am successful because of Jerry Krause. Jerry Krause wants Phil Jackson to say this team would not have won without Jerry Krause. And, okay, fine. That was a bad attitude for Krause to have. To demand fealty from uh, Jackson and Jordan was just a bad decision. And then, but to have Phil get his back up over the fact that he wasn't kissing Krause's ring... Um, Krauss wanted Phil to say, you know, I, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the fact that Jerry Krause had the belief in me to make me an assistant coach originally. Um, you know, the story is that Krause gave him two chances, um, and, and he wanted Phil in every sentence, every conversation to say, I give Jerry Krause credit for where I am, and it just never happened. So, um, in both cases, both men were being a little, little, if you ask me. So, interesting. And, and, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. I expected more, I expected more out of Phil, to be honest with you. I mean, I understand uh, everybody talks about how Kraus was suffering from little man syndrome. Yes. And and I buy that. I can't thank you enough for your time. I'd just like to throw out a name of a player or front office personnel. And if you could just briefly comment with either the first image or story that comes to your head, first characteristic, whatever that may be, uh, I'd love to get look at your your feedback on that so let's start out with dennis rodman a great person on one-on-one basis and a freak show otherwise john paxson in basketball terms he was the perfect role player i am so thankful that he got to hit the shot in 93 and i think it's cool as hell that kerr came along and played the role of john paxson in 97 i just think that i think the um parallelism of those two things is just remarkable bill cartwright Made the best of a bad situation. Bad situation in what way? Well, because Oakley was, he was Jordan's best Charles Oakley, yeah. who was Michael's best friend. He came to a team where nobody liked him. He came into the team with a, a, a weird reputation, besides the fact they had a weird jump shot. I mean, um, Isaiah Thomas continued to, to claim that Bill put an elbow into his eye intentionally. Bill was not a uh, joiner. Uh, he was very much a standalone kind of guy, and um, he suffered as a result of that. Horace Grant? Good old Georgia kid. Wanted desperately to be included in the conversation about Jordan and Pippen. Um, back then, you know, we had a lot of uh, posters that were made with Jordan, Pippen, and Grant. Um, he wanted to be he wanted to be considered an equal as opposed to being a third wheel and suffered from that a little bit. But 
I mean, a gregarious guy, just as, um, you know, really kind hearted. And, and, um, yeah, I have, I have nothing negative to say about Horace. Tony Kukoc. He was a fun guy. He was really hilarious. Um, great sense of humor. Um, I've been saying all along that when they make a movie about the team, Hugh Jackman should play Tony Kukoc, but when we have actually have to go back and, you know, make him younger. Um, <laughs> great call. Uh, Tony uh, was a talented soccer player, and we talked about that on a frequent basis because I began to, began to develop an interest in soccer. And another guy who came into a really difficult situation and made the best of it. You know, I'll tell you something about European basketball players that um, I've shared with Pax and a bunch of other people. The cool thing about European basketball players is that all they want to do is put the ball in the basket, um, whether it's by themselves or by giving it to somebody else in a position where they have an opportunity to make an easy basket. And that that just, I can't get that out of my mind. It's like all the European players, even the guys that are in the league coming over now, they just have a mindset that's different than American basketball players. American basketball players want everybody to say, hey, look at me, or they have a look at me attitude. And European players aren't like that. They're, 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 they're a look at the result attitude. And I just really, Kukoc epitomize that johnny bach boy i mean okay through all okay let's go back to whatever year it was that carl lewis sang the national anthem at the bulls new jersey nets game stopped mm-hmm. in the middle of the anthem apologized because he was getting it wrong and started over i was standing on press row that day and i always cringed anyway at the national anthem because people sing it wrong or get the words wrong or or it's a it's a very high pressure song but Johnny Bach would stand at attention from his military background, Marine background. And I want, I looked at him when Carl Lewis got it wrong and I thought his heart was just going to break. And from that day forward, I have to tell you, it's kind of funny. I never was in the arena for the national anthem ever again. In fact, to the point where uh, it's funny, John Jackson used to, I'd be out in the arena area when the national anthem was about to start and John Jackson would say, Kent, you got to go because he just knew I wasn't going to sit and listen to the national anthem because I, I just cringed every time somebody screwed it up and it gets screwed up so often. Johnny Bach was one tight dude. Um, and really the only thing that it's like on a personal level, you know, he liked to wear cowboy stuff. And, and I remember he used to ask me if I could find, um, good cowboy store in some of the towns that we were visiting where the, the Texas towns were easy. But if we were going to like Denver, or Salt Lake city, he wanted to know if I knew of any good uh, cowboy stores, cowboy wear stores. Was, was he beloved by the team? Did, did the team like him as a coach? Horace Grant liked him. You know, this whole uh, Doberman thing, the building a defense around or building a team success around defense. Um, you know, I grew up in Indiana where that idea was was the Bible. And um, so I knew what kind of mindset goes into playing defense in basketball and what value it had. And boy, Horace Grant, um, I'm sorry, Johnny Bach made a star out of Horace Grant. And um, I thought it was actually really cool, the dichotomy between Bach and Tex. Tex was pure offense. Johnny was pure defense, and it just really worked. And again, you have to give credit to Kraus for building a coaching staff like that. Yeah. Last one, Jerry Reinsdorf. He's a great businessman. I remember I remember thinking, one thing I learned uh, that Jerry told me once in a conversation was that 
he never liked to sign a contract until he absolutely had to because you just never know. And he had that re- he had that relationship a lot with basketball players where, you know, and, and and with baseball players as well. It's like, you know, why sign a contract with anybody early knowing that a guy could get hurt in the shower the next day? Um, he was very, very, very wise about that. And I have to give him credit, too, as a, as a longtime baseball fan. His belief that you give baseball pitchers a contract longer than three years, if I were, um, if I owned a baseball team, I would, I would live by that rule. Mm-hmm. Um, I always, I always respected that about him. Um, I didn't really have a whole lot of personal relationship with him. Um, he spoke to me whenever I needed to talk to him, so I give him credit for that. And I, I felt that he was relatively honest with me. You know, it's funny, but back in the day, uh, we're talking about late. 80s early 90s if you wrote something he didn't like he would write you a letter i would get to work and i would have a letter in my mailbox from jerry reinstorf saying you screwed up this story it was very rarely did he send letters that were complimentary but um so he apparently read everything so i give him credit for being uh, aware of, of what the coverage was like Kent, i can't thank you enough for your time today where can the fans find you now? Like, what, what, is there anything you want to talk about that you would encourage people to read that you're doing? Um, you know, I, I think there's been a tremendous amount of interest again in, in what you've done for, you know, in covering the organization uh, due to this, this documentary. And there's been a lot of people I know emailing me asking to get you on the show. So yeah. I'm really thankful and uh, grateful that you took some time to, to chat with me today. I, um, got out of sports writing in 2013 effectively um and i work now for i'm a writer now for a company that does research on um investors so it's not sports related um you know i'm available on on social media i'm on facebook and i'm on twitter and it's just simply my name my first initial my last name in most cases so um it's funny uh uh I'm not conversant much on Twitter, but I've had to be because of all this. Because a lot of people have found me and, and want to talk, and I'm, I you know, I'm, I love talking about myself. That's always a fun thing. So, um, <laughs> are you still in the Chicago area? Do you live? Did you return to Indiana? Where? No, where's... I'm, I'm, I'm suburban Chicago, born and bred. My kids are uh, all Maine South graduates. So that's fantastic. Kent, thank you so much. 